I'm Toya Nash Randall, curator and catalyst of the multimedia narrative platform Voice Vision Value. This month marks the third anniversary of Voice Vision Value, and I'm excited to announce my newest partnership with nationally respected philanthropist, community leader, and entrepreneur Shonda Smith Baker. Sponsored by Voice Vision Value, Centering Conversations is a new exclusive segment of the award-winning podcast Conversations with Shonda. We're releasing new episodes every Wednesday during Black Philanthropy Month. Be sure to check out the full suite of Centering Conversation interviews this month where Shonda talks to Angel Robertson Daniel, Tashawn Macon, Kiana Thomason, and Coneal Mack. Beginning in September, Centering Conversations will drop every third Wednesday of the month. If you want to know more about Voice Vision Value, check us out at voicevisionvalue.org, where you can also read the Twin Cities chapter of the forthcoming book, Portraits of Us. Angel, welcome to Centering Conversations, a partnership with Voice Vision Value and Conversations with Shonda. It's a delight to be in community with you today. Thank you so much. I appreciate you for having me. Good deal. And so in your current role, or I should say one of your roles, because not unlike many of us in this field, in this work, and in our community, we often sit with many hats. We have our formal role, we have our informal roles, we have our board seats, we have the auntie, mother, sister, all the things. And um, as I was looking at your resume and learning a little bit more like you, you wear many, many hats, but in your formal role, you are the executive director at the Angel Foundation. That's correct. Yes. And I've been with Angel Foundation since 2005. So it's it's been about 18, 19 years for me now. It's been the greatest joy of my professional career thus far. So I'm so blessed to be able to have such a long tenure at a foundation that I really love and have the ability to do work that I really, really care about. The Angel Foundation is in honor of a couple that lost their life. I'm coming into knowing that foundation and it feels like you can't really, I can't go forward in the conversation without saying their names and giving space for you to sort of talk about the evolution of how this got founded and started. Um, If you wouldn't mind sharing that with us and then maybe how you came into your role. So as you mentioned, the Angel Foundation was started by a beautiful couple who were very philanthropic, of course, in their own right, David Angel and his wife, Lynn. David Angel is um, most famous for being a writer and producer, director on shows like Frasier and Cheers, um, Wings and some other things. He and his wife tragically lost their life during the 9-11 terrorist attacks. So they were in that very first plane leaving out of Boston to come to California. Um, And that plane, of course, was the plane that was hijacked and flown into the World Trade Center. So out of that extreme tragedy of their death, the Angel Foundation continues to operate with their assets, but also really in their memory and with the same ethos that they really had for living their life of ensuring that everyone was treated with dignity and respect and and compassion and really had the opportunity to live the life to the fullest expression possible. You know, so they didn't have their own children, but they were extremely instrumental in, in helping to facilitate kind of a healthy kind of transition to adulthood 
tons of foster youth um, in their life. And, um, and the Angel Foundation, I would say, is probably the, the manifestation of what a child would have been for them, right? They started the foundation prior to their passing, um, mm. but they were not able to do a lot of grant making out of the foundation before they passed, um, before they passed away. And so um, I, can, I consider it being a continuation of um, the work that they would have done had they been given the opportunity to do it. Thank you for correcting me because... I thought it actually followed their death, but they actually started it before that tragic date. They did. They did. They did not get as far as hiring staff or anything like that, but they had established the foundation, um, had named um, a third person to be a trustee alongside them. And he's still with us today. He's actually our president and board chair. and, And he's actually the person who was instrumental in bringing me on board to help work alongside him to take the foundation from kind of a, you know, a small um, kind of idea um, of, of, of the promise of what they could do philanthropically and make it, it what it is today. And so your name is Angel. My name is Angel. Yes, it's my first name. And it is our founder's last name. And so, you know, if you believe in coincidences or anything like that, I think it's a, um, beautiful coincidence that we share uh, that name Angel in some capacity. I'm like, look at how things work. I mean, it just sort of made my heart fill up at um, your name and and that last name when I was reading about it and how things come. And then to have you open up and say, it's been one of the greatest joys of, of your life to be there and to grow their vision and to support that legacy and to bring that impact. What has been the most rewarding elements of that for you? Like, well, for me, I mean, you have to remember, I came into the foundation on the heels of um, just this tremendous tragedy. So I would say my, my first memory of the foundation is operating with this tremendous amount of grief so much grief of, you know, not just that they had lost their life, but that the country had gone through this um, tragic event together. And I think for me, it's been kind of a joy to work alongside the foundation, but also the family to move from this place of, of living in grief to like moving into joy, right? That there is now still an opportunity, you know, more than 20 years later, for the legacy of their family to live on and live on in the most positive way. And so we don't have to focus on how they died, how they lost their life, but really now get an opportunity to focus on how they live their life and the foundation continues to operate that way. So I think just to see that evolution and to be part of that evolution and that story, um, it's not something that you get an opportunity to do in your career most times. And so the fact that I had the opportunity to do that, like I said, has been a tremendous joy. Um, And to do it um, on behalf of a couple I have yet to meet. And like I've been there now for a while, I have yet to meet anyone who does not have the most amazing things to say about David Owen, right? So I can't say that everyone who works in a philanthropic organization has that, has that, privilege, right? So to be able to know that you really are doing work on behalf of someone who really did walk the talk, right? They really did treat people with dignity and respect. They really did 
go the extra mile. And so the fact that we are doing that too, and it's not us trying to rewrite history, I mean, it just feels, it, it just feels incredible. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I feel just a tremendously blessed to be able to do this. I am resonating with something that I was part of founding, which is the Black Collective Foundation. In 2020, following the murder of George Floyd, my co-founders, the other co-founders, Lolit, Mola, and Rapa, and I came together, Makai, Rapa, Makai, and I came together to found um, the Philanthropic Collective to Combat Anti-Blackness, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which was a statement that came out that evolved into a series of convenings, all by Zoom because we were in COVID, that then evolved into our wantingness, right? Our need to move from this tragedy to end as something that could be sustained and committed to investing into Black leadership, Black genius, and, and Black community. And so then we then moved it, evolved it into what is now the Black Collective Foundation. And so as you said that, certainly different circumstances, but evolving from what was tragic to what could be um, what's possible, right? Not living on the tragedy, but living on the potential of of what um, was catalyzed um, Mm -hmm. out of that. And so what advice, is there any advice? Like how long, like, did it take a long time? Is it just bringing the right people? Like, because there's a lot of people that are living different versions of loss and tragedy and grief. Yeah, you know, I have to just be completely honest with you. It, it, it was not, uh, you know, it was not a microwave thing, right? It, it, there were, it was a journey and it really took some time. And I would say it was around the 10 year mark of 9-11 where, we made a real intentional effort to just sit in the grief and um, to really think about, okay, what does the next 10 year period of the foundation look like? And we said, um, the grief was necessary. Like that's a, that's a, a necessary and a natural part of the, of, of the human process, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's not a healthy place to stay. Because on the heels of the work that we have to do, it has to be steeped in hope and optimism. We have to ground the work in the world we want to actually create versus the world that we left, right? And so we really want it to be more future thinking. And so we we really created space in the foundation for us to really interrogate all of the things I talked about before. Who were David and Lynn when they were living? How did they live their life? What did people have to say about them? How did they show up? Um, Did people feel seen, right? All of those things that we really thought about and we were really intentional about making sure that those things that we learned were part of our values moving forward, that they informed our practices, they informed the things that we actually funded in the community so that we were operating, like I said, again, with the spirit of optimism. It really did change the way that we showed up every day, right? I mean, there would be times we'll be in staff meetings and literally cry because sitting in that grief, 
literally cry. You'll be sitting with the grantee and recounting the story. And everybody was touched by 9-11 in some, in some capacity. What, you know, they may have lost a loved one or um, they remember where they were that day. And so we would be on site visits and there would be tears, right? So um, that just wasn't emotionally sustainable for any of us. And so it really just changed the way that we showed up. It really changed the way that we engaged in conversations with people about their dreams and hopes and aspirations for their communities, the organizations, and the causes that they were really championing. Do you think that that helps ground you in the why differently than perhaps other foundations that might be more distanced from that? Absolutely. It's something that we talk about when we bring new staff on. You know, when I speak to some of my other colleagues who are in philanthropy, and I know a lot of foundations are kind of going through their um, truth and reconciliation process of their own, right, of how their wealth was acquired. And you're shaking your head, right? Um, And I'm not saying that we are um, immune to any of those conversations, Um, but it, it, it is somewhat different, right, in that the wealth came from a couple who, um, though they did make money while they were living, most of the money that the foundation actually has, it's come from prudent investments, but also, you know, they lost their life. So it came from the act of them losing their life, right? And so I, I think it's really more so like we have a responsibility to make sure to the extent that we can, that their loss wasn't in vain, right? That um, that we really are the stewards of their legacy. And and it's not just us being transactional with resources the way I think some other foundations think about it. Even though the system of philanthropy was really built on banking and financials systems, when you think about practices, that for us, it's not that. For us, it's really about being in a transformational relationship for the partners that we are supporting with the resources of the foundation. If I can play on that to... Mm -hmm legacy. Like I've been in a space of thinking a lot about legacy. It's probably my my age. <laughs> my youngest just turned 18. Um, I just had my own career change. And I've been thinking a lot about, about legacy, legacy building, legacy of my family, legacy, like just legacy. Mm-hmm. And so you have a family that you're working for, um, working on behalf of, um, that has a level of legacy, but you bring a legacy the, to the work because you were instrumental in building out the vision that communicated their values and their essence. And so your your legacy is is connected. Your legacies are connected. You also extend beyond the walls and the impact of that place. What responsibility do you think we have when we think about perhaps our own legacies? Yeah, I think for me, when I think about legacy, I really think about what are you what are you leaving behind for the next generation to pick up or whoever succeeds you to pick up? I think that's what David and Lynn did, right? That's that was that is the foundation where I think our legacies intersect is I've always considered myself to be a dream broker, right? And so I have an opportunity to be able to sit in the space with leaders, with, you know, community members, and really ask them about their dreams and aspirations for 
the world that they are looking to create. And my responsibility has been to connect them to the resources that will actually make that happen, right? Whether those resources are financial resources or networks or even creating a container or space for them to continue to to play with the vision a little bit. When I think about my role at the Angel Foundation, I feel like I've done that with the foundation, right? I feel like David and Lynn had a dream, even though they weren't able to work in their foundation for a long time, but that they had a dream for a world that they they wanted to actually help come about. And, um, and so I still have an opportunity to be a dream broker in that capacity, both as a you know, as an employee of the foundation, but also just as part of my own legacy of how I want to actually leave the, leave this earth. I want people to really think about me in that way that I was able to stand in the gap with them as they were really thinking through what their legacy would be, how they would actually manifest their dreams, how they could think about their career differently, how they could think about the conditions in their organization in a different way. Um, and so, so that's what I think about my legacy. I think everyone should really be clear about their why, mm-hmm. the why they're doing the work, and all of the things that they actually can do to actually make that, right, make that why a reality. I'll, I quote my grandmother all the time, but she would always tell us the only two things that are certain in life is the day you're born and the day you die. Right. And it is our responsibility to fill in the dash. Right. Because when we actually when people speak about it, it's going to be those things, the things that we did or the body of work that we helped to curate, the way that we made people feel, what we did in between those two dates. And so I've always thought about that, like what's going to be in between what's going to be in my dash. (laughs) Right. Like that's the legacy. The story is going to be told through the work that I did, but also the legacy that I left with my family, the way that my children continue to live their life right? The, hopefully the way that the folks that I've mentored in all of the different capacities continue to lead their life. You are, according to your resume and those that I've talked to, you are very busy. <laughs> um, you have a lot, right? Or, or I should reframe and say you are very productive. And yet you just use the, you just communicated that you have taken time to mentor others. Um, I assume that that's part of filling in your dash. But it also was an intentional commitment, which I think goes to the dream brokering commitment as part of your why, but as part of sort of this voice, vision, value, right? A community of supporters, right? To just bring in the essence of what that is. What for you is both the value of being mentored and being a mentee? What has been the value of both of those things for you in terms of your career and life? So I can tell you, I I found my way to philanthropy. Um, It was not an intentional choice for me to come to philanthropy. It wasn't something I set out in my career to do. And so when I landed in this space, um, I quickly was searching around trying to figure out what is this? Um, And and I could have benefited from mentors um, or spaces that really poured into me. Mm -hmm. One personally and professionally. Um, And so the work that I do through Vision Voice Value and in some of the other spaces to create what I consider consider intentional structured spaces (laughs) for people to really tend to their inner life um, is because it's what I would have needed. 
what I would have benefited from, right? And given the opportunity to fund those things, um, it, it felt like the right thing to do. And given an opportunity to be in a space with others and to create an opportunity to, um, to pour into someone else, mm-hmm. um, it, 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 it feels like it's the right thing to do, right? I, we all have heard, as you climb, you're supposed to pull your, you know, pull somebody else with you. And I really believe that that's true. And I take that really seriously. Um, And then I can tell you as a black woman, there are things in this, no one prepares you for, no one prepares you for going into a board meeting or going into spaces and um, your intellect being questioned, right? Or your reality being questioned Um, or you saying something in a meeting and no one else you know, you're, you're the, the lone voice on an issue when you're, especially if you're bringing up issues that are central to your lived experience and you're the lone voice and no one is validating that, but someone meets you at the, at the water cooler and they say, Ooh, yeah, I, I, I really agree with what you said, but you didn't say anything in the meeting, right? It would have been nice if you said something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so those types oh, of experiences. Anybody is listening that does that at the bottom <laughs> just don't do that no more ever no more right like if you can't do it at the in the meeting don't do it right so but I can I can't tell you the number of times that that happened to me earlier in my career and the number of young people or just colleagues that have recounted stories of those types of things happening to them right and so those are the things that no one prepares you for that a mentor could walk you through or you've been in a space with other other people in the sector who look like you, who have the same experience as you, can validate you're not you, you're not crazy. This is really happening, and so that's why it's been really important to me to mentor. And at the same time, I've also um, continued to be mentored. Right, I always am looking for people who have different experiences than me or more lived experience than me, so that I can continue to like sit at the feet of my elders and and continue to learn um, so that I can continue to show up in a way that is authentic to who I am and doing work that I can that I can be proud of, but also doing work that is needed in the community. Because ultimately it's really not about me. Ultimately it is not. Yeah. Which which I think comes from oftentimes how we as black women were raised. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you come home feeling yourself and your parents will be like, girl, it ain't about you. <laughs> you better understand what you're here to do. It's not about you. Right. It's not about so, you. Right. It's and not it's not enough you. to say I got mine. If you're the only one who has yours and everybody else is still not in a, you know, a good, healthy, thriving situation, then I don't think that that's a marker of good leadership. Right. No. So it can't be about me. Yeah, that's right. For the water cooler conversation, I want to just go back to that because I think for me, I think the validation of what happens in various spaces, whether or not it's the boardroom or the meeting or whatever, to have someone say, I see what happened, is often, it is important to feel those acknowledgements. But it is also important for people to, to step in and be bold and acknowledge them in the moment, in the space. Because if we're not going to be courageous in the moment, we're not going to be able to shift 
the environment. We're not going to be able to actually gain the, the muscles that we need to wrestle with the topics and the issues and the ways that we might need to wrestle with them or acknowledge it at the water cooler, but maybe there's another conversation to say, okay, I, I saw it. It didn't feel like an appropriate time to address it, but let's have a conversation about how it can be addressed. Let's, let's, let's partner together. So do you have any other maybe advice for people that might be witnessing or having people say, I want to help you, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because there's a lot of allyship and people that want to help and step in to to being more courageous that need assistance. Right. And I think it's a, well, I think it starts with self-reflection. There is a level of self-awareness in order to be a good leader, a good ally, a good philanthropist that one must cultivate, mm-hmm. right? And that self-awareness is really about understanding um, what your values are, understanding why you are doing the work that you're doing, and kind of really being clear about, like, you, you use the word courage. I use that all the time, too. I love that word. But well, what you're willing to risk in service of the things that you say you really care about and believe in, what you're willing to risk in service of the values that you say you hold extremely dear, right? Because it's, it's, everything is all about one's actions. So a lot of the conversations that I end up having with folks are really about that. You know, why, why were you silent, right? And helping people to understand the risk of inaction, Mm. right? Or the consequences of inaction, you know, if you say that you really are an ally, but you're silent on issues that you know really could use your voice, are you really honestly being true to the values that you've expressed? Oftentimes, I feel like when you're st- when you when you create the container for people to be self-reflective and they they have those moments, they pivot. They pivot. And so with that comes, I think, a level of grace too, a level of grace to say, this is really not about me holding your feet to the fire or making you feel bad, but it's really more so about asking you if you can really bring your internal and external in alignment, right? The Your external actions in alignment with your internal, what you say your, your internal world dictates in terms of what you care about. Following 2020 and just the the racial reckoning or the racial awareness was a rise of people working in the space of doing more equity work, bringing more people into diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging and, you know, all of the, the ways that we were doing that. But I also know that there were folks that ran right into it very aggressively and we need to reverse everything that's been wronged out of deep trauma and exhaustion. There were other people that really want to see and be different, but afraid to say the wrong thing. And what I'm watching is sort of a lack of grace on both sides, right? And so it feels like some of the conversations are stalling, right? Institutionally, I think that there's a bigger issue at play but interpersonally, I'm watching things stall. Do you think that it, if we were positioned to extend more grace, that it would be helpful 
in the in our current climate? I, I do. I understand the burn it down crowd, right? <laughs> no, those <laughs> I have, just, I have my days. Yeah. <laughs> I have my days. I get it. I, I get though that I understand what they're saying is like, we just need to like start from scratch. The reason I think that there needs to be a little bit of grace is, but what are we going to build in its place? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm saying, I think there needs to be grace on both sides for the folks who say, I totally, for, for folks to look at both sides, say, I totally understand why these systems don't work or the practices that have been in place absolutely don't work and why we need to do something different. I think what was missing in a lot of those conversations though is just what I mentioned of what then is going to be the system that we rebuild or what are we replacing it with? And so I think then that just creates so much division, right? When folks can't come together who are really looking at the end goal, like, what is the end goal? What are we trying to create? How do we get there? Let's not get too hung up on definition, but let's get real, real clear about the intent, the practice, and the impact and the outcomes that we're looking for. And so that's what I mean, uh, what I mean by grace. I don't mean grace in terms of, let's just say that um, that everything goes. I don't think that I mean that. And I think some people have have used grace in that way of saying, give me some grace, which means don't hold me accountable for doing anything. Give me the space to just be inert. And I don't I'm not saying that. I don't think that's what grace means. What I think grace means is let's figure out how we can move together towards ultimately a goal that we all believe is is necessary and possible. Mm -hmm. You have been in in your role for a while, and there are a lot of new people coming into philanthropy, Black women coming into philanthropy. For people that are coming in that are are new into formal philanthropy, what advice might you have? Find your tribe. Find some people who care about you Mm. and your humanity. And people who are going to be willing to um, see you, support you, speak your name in rooms that you're not in, share lessons, both good and bad, things that they've done well and things that they haven't done so well. Also, look for folks who are willing to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I know a lot, oftentimes coming into philanthropy, we're bright eyed and bushy tailed. We're really, really optimistic, which I think is absolutely necessary, but no one tells you, you don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to know everything. And so finding folks who, who who will say to you, that's a way, but there may be some other ways (laughs) I think is important. Right. Or, you know, that may have been a little bit of a misstep, but these are some ways in which you can do a little bit of a mere course correction. I think all of those things are extremely necessary only because the exit out of philanthropy, specifically for people of color, is um, sometimes it's, it's quick, right? People don't get the support they need and they end up leaving the space and they leave the space for good. And I think having the right people around you will help to be a real good anchor for you. But I also think it's important for folks to understand the why. And I think, you know, thinking about that legacy question right away, I think is important. When you leave here, what is it that you want to be able to say about your tenure, your leadership? 
what conversations would do you want to make sure that you help the foundation to engage in? Um, did you want to ex- extend the reach to communities that they may have never, you know, they say they serve, but they don't actually have any evidence of serving. Do you want to do that? Do you want to really support the foundation in thinking about its culture in a different way? Right. So like having some real ideas around how you want to use your time, Um do you want to help the foundation to get more proximate to certain things? And, you know, like, so really thinking that through so that you can, you can start, I think, right away on your listening journey, your learning journey, and then putting all those things into action. There's a level of vulnerability that goes with being in a community of people that will hold you accountable to your own vision for your life. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you have to be willing to, you know, you have to be able to curate a space where you can show up that way, that you can show up vulnerable. And, um, and again, that's why I say, make sure that you, that you surround yourself with people who care about you and your humanity, right? So that you can be vulnerable in all of, the, and you can show all the facets of the human experience to them <laughs> that you feel comfortable sharing, right? That you don't have to perform in the space of folks who are, who are helping to create an intentional structural environment for you to be. And you were an AbbVie fellow. I was an AbbVie fellow. You really have found out a lot. I did. I did. You were an AbbVie fellow. There's an advantage point to being part of experiences like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. AbbVie, being an AbbVie fellow, that was the first time that I had been in a space and you hear me say, I, I keep saying intentional structured spaces. So it was the first time that I had been in a space where I didn't have to, as part of my introduction, right, give context for who I was, why I cared about the things that I cared about, why I showed up the way that I showed up, because it was a, a space of other folks who were living the same life. You know, I found I had been in philanthropy for definitely a decade, if not longer, by the time I found AppFee um, and became an AppFee fellow. But but that was the space that I needed at the time. It was the, one of those things where I was even, I think, starting to really think about because the world had gone through so much, the recession. I mean, there had been so much. Could I really, could I really make the type of difference that I want to make in this sector? Right. And is there something else that I could be doing with the platform and the position that I had to really push the ante on advancing social change? Through that year-long fellowship and all of those beautiful relationships that I that I created with folks around the country, I feel like I found the answer. I found the answer. And I always had said before that I'm, I'm always authentically me, always authentically me. But it was something about that space. That space fortified me, right? I feel like it fortified me in a different way. Um, so not only did it give me an opportunity to have a little bit of rest and respite, that's important. But the amount of care and attention that AFI gave us and the fellows were able to give to one another, 
like I said, just um, gave me enough oomph mm. for me to feel like I can continue to do this. I can continue to do this. I could continue to go into spaces and show up not only as myself, but to really engage in conversations that are really about the greater good, right? Yeah. How do we create a more loving, healthy, thriving, equitable world, right? And be completely passionate about that and be steadfast in my commitment to that. One of the questions that I've been asking is, who do you need to be to show up in the work? I think you need to be your ancestor's wildest dream. Mm. <laughs> I just love that. Yeah. Whatever. So, you know, because when I think about my grandma, my grandparents, my great grandparents, their wildest dream, I'm sure for their grandchildren and their great grandchildren was for us to be in a place where we can exercise full agency over our person and our decision making and be able to be in spaces where we can make decisions that will impact future generations so that they will end up being better than the than we were right to continue to pass the baton and I feel like I need to I, I want to continue to be that I want to be my ancestors wildest dream yeah how well do you think this sector is doing with succession and knowledge transfer I think there's room to grow in succession I mean I you know there are two instances here in LA where we just had two long-term CEOs move on and they have an internal hire, right? But again, those are, that's two instances. So I can't count to it's happening. It's not happening enough. Mm-hmm. I do think it is the place where we need to do um, a much better job at preparing folks for increased responsibility in the space. I also mean in the boardroom, right? How do we build pathways to, to the boardroom where a lot of the conversations are made, right? So I always think about the 5%, 95%. The boardroom talks about the 95% of the foundation's assets. The staff, they get to talk about and manage the 5%. So we need to be thinking about succession in all places. Yeah, you sit on a, a number of boards and I think that's a place where I believe deeply in the power of board governance in terms of setting strategy, supporting the desired culture, but also how they pipeline and think about uh, talent, both talent development, the investment of talent, and succession. And I mean, I I love board governance. I'm sort of a, a nerd in, in that respect. And I think you must too, because I've seen that list of board yeah. I, I do. I really, really enjoy board service and I, I I love governance as a whole. So I'm a board, I think I'm a governance nerd. That's what I call myself. You know, for, for those that are listening that either new to boards or are considering or or sitting on them, what do you think the greatest power of being on a, on a board, a member, a trustee of a board is relative to to advancing equity and impacting community? Yeah, well, I mean, one of my mentors, Virgil Roberts, who founded African American Board Leadership Institute here in LA, he he always says, you know, the fish rots from the head, um, and that's what his way of saying that um, everything starts and stops with the board, right? So, you know, the board is in a position to ask the right questions around the organizations or the foundations' policies and practices, right? 
and how we are demonstrating our commitment to um, some of the values that we talk about. You know, you have most foundations who have made some public pronouncement or announcement around their commitment to equity in some, some capacity, right? Where the rubber hits the road, though, is the board. You know, is the board asking the right questions around what does that what that looks like? Is the organization using equitable practices as it relates to hiring? How big of a net are they casting? Where are they casting in there too? Asking questions around, you know, measurement. How we how are we actually measuring whether or not we are achieving the goals that we said we want to achieve? Like so, I think that's really an important place for us to really look at is making sure that there are people in the boardroom who are knowledgeable, committed folks who will really take their governance and fiduciary responsibility important and who understand that it is their responsibility to make sure that the organization lives into the mission that it really states that it's committed to. Tell me about your quest to, to to board service. I, you know, I don't really know how I got on really loving boards, but I will tell you that when I was up and coming in this nonprofit that I eventually uh, started to, you know, became the CEO of, I had ran across this organization that was pipelining folks of color onto boards. You know, people would come and tell me stuff in community or whatever about whether or not they thought things were effective or not effective. And so I'm like, let me see if it's effective or not, right? Like, I don't want to hear it. I want to test it, right? Like, let me see where they're going to, you know, let me see what the process is. And so I built out the little online thing and I wanted to see where I ultimately ended up getting placed and I ended up getting placed on a board. And I don't know if it was the right board, but it was the right board. And um, you've been talking about your grandmother and um, the board was Meals on Wheels. My grandmother used to volunteer with them and she would uh, have me go with her on occasion when she volunteered. It reminded me of a particular moment that brought me close to her. You know, she had, you know, gone on, she's now an ancestor. And I sat there and it was a board in an organization that I would have never considered on my own. So number one, the process worked. And so I just sort of believe in, in testing and not just going off of the word of others. Like it's informative, but sometimes you got to get to know it yourself, just being open. And so by doing it, it's like I learned more about those that were food insecure, maybe because of the financial inability, but because they couldn't get to it or for health reasons or all these different things that would show up and different financial modeling. And I'm like, wow, what I'm learning here is helping me in my job over here. And I'm like, okay. So then I got invited to be on another board and I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. What they're doing is actually sharpening how I approach, how my strategy is over here. And I can help them sharpen because I'm really good at this over here. And so I have found it to be a place of continual learning and understanding and refining and contribution both to me and to them. And I think it is the ultimate responsibility to driving the values that are important to me. You know, I hear people saying it'd be good on my resume. Yeah, it could be good on your resume, but you shouldn't join a board because it's good for your resume. 
Absolutely not. I agree with you. Now, I always tell people that too, you know, really be clear about your yes, right? Why would you say yes to this board? And making sure that there is alignment, right? When you think about what the organization needs and what you're willing to give or what you have the capacity to give, making sure that there's some alignment there, right? So if the organization is in the growth mode and they need you to roll your sleeves up, are you able to do that? right? Because a a good board member is an active board member. A good board member is a board member who takes their responsibility really seriously. I really do think that, you know, board service is really like civic engagement, right? It's really not just a resume builder. It's not just something you do to volunteer. It really is your form of civic engagement, just like it is if you were ran for public service, right? This is your service to the community by way of this board to, to make sure that the organization is really able to live into the its duty of care, duty of loyalty, right? It, first and foremost, is this a good, that's, is this organization doing something that's really in service to the community and doing it well? I totally agree with that. I mean, every board that I'm in, I haven't been able to roll up my sleeves to the degree that maybe other colleagues have been, but I do read those materials, right? Because I've had to create materials, right? So I know what goes into, right? The machine of preparing for a board meeting is not for the faint of hearts, it's not for the faintest part. So if I just do it out of respect to the staff that had to put it together, I'm going to read those materials. Um, I the staff appreciate you for doing that too. <laughs> I will do it. I will do it. And I try to, I try to ask reasonable questions out of respect and in support of what I believe we're all collectively trying to accomplish. And so that's why, I mean, it has, it has just given me so much and ultimately it does enhance me professionally, but that's not the driver because it it assists in developing. It has assisted for me in developing me professionally and growing uh, a network. And, and it's allowed me, you know, if I use the elephant analogy to see things from the different side of the elephant. Yeah. Right. And which I think is really, really important because you can get sometimes comfortable with one perspective. And so it always pushes me um, because I sort of stay inquisitive and curious. So it, it pushes me to see things from other lenses that, that just feeds me. If everyone exercised their ability to see things from multiple lenses and multiple perspectives, I think a lot of the, the you know, divisiveness, a lot of the scarcity mindset that I think a lot of folks end up operating under. If you have some, I can't get some. If this community gets some, this community um, won't have any. Um, I think those issues won't be as pronounced. I love that you said that, you know, you you are finding that board service gives you that ability to see things from multiple angles. Because we always at Angel Foundation talk about um, the scallop principle and the scallop, you know, scallop has like a hundred eyes, right? That if we cultivated everybody's ability to see like a scallop, mm-hmm. right? Um, then I think we will be in a, you know, in a much better situation. I've sat on some boards where the first meeting, you know, I'm sort of sitting around and someone will talk and I'll be like, oh, this will be a long board service with this, this character across the table. And then about the third meeting, I'm like, I think I like that person quite a bit, <laughs> right? Like, right. So just testing my own assumptions and, and just like how I came in 
I just, I just love the challenge that it brings to myself. I really do. Probably the rest of my career is to make sure that I am in a boardroom somewhere supporting an organization and doing exactly what I think, you know, my, like I said, I think my gift is being a dream broker. And I think I, you know, I play that role also on the board that I'm on. I love it. I know that in my time, there's just been a community of women that have invested in me. There have been men, my dad, my uncles, you know, like there have certainly been men, but there's been just a community of women. And as I've gotten older, it's becoming more and more important to me. And as I've moved forward in my leadership, it has been the lifeline um, for me. And I think you said it earlier where you just walk into a space and you can just give a look and they'd be like, "Uh, come here, honey. I know. Or girl, that's right. A high five. Like there's just this unspoken room and space that we have or I have had to show up. I just want to acknowledge the, the curator and vision of, of Toya Nash Randall and many other women that are creating space for us just to show up as we are. And I just want to see if you have any words that you want to just express around a community of, of Black women and what perhaps they've done for you in, in your life and leadership. Oh, yeah, well... Absolutely. Toya is one. Toya has definitely been someone who has um, been there for me, you know, in in the time that I've known her. And she has created opportunities for me to meet other folks like yourself. Um, And, you know, there are a list of other women, you know, um, Judy Belk from California Wellness Foundation, Susan Batten from APFI, Joanna Jackson from Weingart. So many who have, been a safe space for me to land, right? And those moments, you know, this work is not without its challenges, even though I started this podcast and this has been a great joy of my life. And it has been, um, it hasn't been without its challenges. Um, and so to have people who, again, can fill your cup because we pour out so much of ourselves as Black women. We are oftentimes asked to do the most with the least, <laughs> right? And to you know, take on work that doesn't necessarily have the level of sexy appeal that some other you know other work has, or to be in spaces like I mentioned before, where you know your existence needs to be validated by someone who doesn't look like you. Um, and so you know the work hasn't hasn't been without its challenges. And so to have folks like the sisters that I mentioned before have been in my corner throughout my career have just has just been um, incredible and I'm so thankful for them and that's why I've continued to and will always support you know voice vision value because I really want that level of sisterhood available to other black women right in addition to you know I think it's also important to document the work that black women have done in this sector for the historical record Right. And so I really love that Toya is spending some time um, really putting that together and sharing those stories broadly through social media and the book so that no one can say that Black women didn't make their mark. Right. That Black women haven't been at the forefront of carrying the water. We have, um, even when we have been in places where we have been invisible. 
we have done really great work. And like I said, we've often done the most with the least, right? Mm-hmm. Or have been expected to do that as well. I've run a, a fairly small foundation. Oftentimes when I'm speaking to other Black women leaders who run nonprofits, you know, they receive very, very little philanthropic resources. And so, you know, being part of this network has also given me an opportunity to help to connect them to other folks who see them and see the work that they do and the value of the work that they do um, in the hopes that they might be able to get some support for the communities or the work that they're doing in, in, in their nonprofit organizations. And so this, this work has just been more than, um, like I said, safe space to land. It has really been a real community for me. And I'm so glad to be a part of it. So, so glad. Love it. I, lo- I love that I asked that question. I love how your face like brightened up in the energy like that you put into the, the screen because I don't think that there's anything more valuable than being seen, that we are navigating some really challenging things in our lives, in our work, in our, in our minds and generationally, and, and we're combating things all the time. But to just walk into a space and be seen and supported, it pays dividends. And if we can do a lot out of a little, without a lot of support, can you imagine? Like you could see what happens with more support. It just pays in a way that brings more and more value into the communities we where we're living and, and, and working in. And it's incredible. I, it's just an co- incredible community. I'm so grateful. Yeah, it is definitely an incredible community. And I do get through Angel Foundation, we have a portfolio called Transformational Leadership. And so I get an opportunity to fund other programs, you know, similar to Voice Venture Value that give leaders in other spaces the opportunity to, to develop a community where they also can be seen and they also can be fortified and also have opportunities to be self-reflective and really think about the why, like what, what undergirds their leadership and what, and, and to think about their dreams for what a more loving, healthy, equitable world could look like. Right, and they're rolling and creating it. So, like I said, I, I I feel I feel very fortunate to be able to do that through Voice Vision Value and the transformational leadership work that we find at Angel. I tell people all the time, you're investing in organizations, but you are investing in leadership. And like, even if the program goes away, the leaders just keep growing and growing and growing. So, you know, good leaders are like the gifts that keep on giving. And when you find one. Man, I tell you, so with that program from the Angel Foundation, are you just funding um, in California? Is it extend beyond? Is it regional or? So, no, it's a national, actually. So it's a national portfolio and we fund probably at the time anywhere between 30 and 50 organizations who are creating intentional structured spaces that typically look like fellowships for leaders in different sectors to come together and interrogate why they're really doing the work, to really align their values and their vocation, to be in a space where, again, they can be seen, they're not isolated. People fail to realize that sometimes being the CEO or the executive director is oftentimes one of the most isolating positions that you can have, right? Because you're wedged right in between the staff who are really looking to you for your leadership and the board that's judging you for your leadership, (laughs) right? That doesn't necessarily create 
the conditions for you to be vulnerable. We talked about the importance of leaders being vulnerable, but sometimes that structure doesn't really create that. And so unless the organization has really been intentional about creating an environment and a culture where, and the board has also been intentional about that, for people to really be able to show up and the fullness of who they are and the wholeness of who they are, the types of spaces that we fund through the transformational leadership portfolio might be the only opportunity that a leader gets to just be and to sit in the space and to be seen and to talk about some of the challenges that they may be grappling with either in their leadership or in their own life and to hear other perspectives. And so you're right, we absolutely are investing in leaders because we have a perspective that in order for us to make the world a better place, however you want to define it, you need people who who operate with a level of hope and optimism that they can actually create that, right? That, you know, that they're not cynical about the fact that better is possible, mm-hmm. that they can operate from the heart's imagination, right? That they can dream it and operate from that place of what better actually looks like. And they can lead and guide their organizations, whether it's an organization that they're in when they join the, the program or an organization that they may join later in their tenure, but that they really believe that they have the capacity to advance change. I have been fortunate is that I've been able to find folks like you, places that have been willing to invest in my leadership over time. Like I remember when I worked um, at uh, this place here called Sabathany Community Center here in Minneapolis, the CEO at the time, Jim Cook, he's, he's passed on. But I remember wanting to be in leadership Twin Cities, leadership Minneapolis, it was called at the time. And um, I just really wanted to do it. And I didn't know how I was going to pay for it. And he said he would pay for it for me. And I just remember how I couldn't believe it. I couldn't wait to get home and tell everybody that this investment in my leadership was being made to going into another program called Mentium 100 and getting an executive mentor and having another person pay for me to attend that. And I'm running into more and more people that want time to get on the balcony, to get resources, to invest in their leadership. And they're running into no's within their institutions. And, 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 and having trouble getting the space that they need to sort of sustain their leadership, sort of fortify in the way that we've, we've discussed in this. I think that there's still this thinking that the, lead, the leadership development is around tac- tactical expertise and that the investment and like the relationship and fortifying the leadership and being seen are sort of this heavily nuanced, ambiguous, not worth the expense. So how did you even land in that space? And and do you see those things as equal importance? And and what advice might you give to the field or to spaces that might not be considering that as a worthy investment? Yeah, thank you for that question. So I I do think it's a both and, right? So you, you do want a leader who knows how to budget, right? And right. So you you need, you know, uh, your CEO, your executive director to have what I consider the more um, 
tactical, you know, mechanical skills of running an operation. Um, but that's not enough. That's not enough. You really want a leader who has the capacity to um, create the conditions for people to do their best work. Mm-hmm. And that is not going to happen through an Excel spreadsheet. That's going to happen through a leader being able to show up and do what we've talked about today is so important. I see you. I see you. And um, to be able to communicate with the level of compassion and, and to be able to see their staff and see the community that they're in um, with some empathetic lenses, to be able to sit in rooms with other folks who may not necessarily use the same definitions that they use or think about things the same exact way and be able to figure out how do we resolve this conflict or how do we bridge this divide. Folks who are willing to show enough of their humanity to say that, you know, I am as much of a human being as I am a leader. To say that, I may not know all of the answers. Uh, I want to engage everyone in figuring out how we can dream together, right? So how can we co-create, co-pilot, co-design um, the the work that we all are doing together? So like, so so those are the things that are for some people it's innate, but that's not innate for everybody. Some people need to be in places where what we used to call soft skills um, are are championed and taught so that people can have some additional things in their toolkit. And, and, and beyond that, you know, we also have to think, haven't talked about adaptability. The country has gone through so much. If I think about um, the tenure of some of the leaders that I have had the privilege of working, l- working alongside or supporting their work, they've been in their organizations for decades. So they've gone through a lot you know, multiple recessions, a pandemic, you know, 9-11, you know, different political, social political environments. You know, adaptability is something that they also, that leaders also need. That's also not taught through an Excel course, of course, in Excel. And so, you know, being able to really help to like add on to that toolkit, which is really just rounding out what it means to what it really means to be a, a servant. Cause I think leaders ultimately are servants, like really understanding what that is. I think those are extremely important and you're right. Not enough people see the value in that. Things are changing. I think things are improving. I see more foundations now are becoming a little bit more interested in it. And so I'm hoping that things will change and that it's something that every foundation will support and that every leader feels is important enough for them to want to be part of those communities as well. Because not every leader thinks it's important to operate with a sense of empathy or to be able to sit with the staff member who was going through a challenging time and tell them, I see you, I'm with you and I understand and what can I do to support you? Or to be self-aware enough to, if if they make a misstep or they use outdated language because maybe you know things have changed since they became a leader right <laughs> that they're self-aware enough to want to make <laughs> they're self-aware enough to want to make not only amends 
but to we're willing to change, to do the work to change. So you know, I can go on and on and on about it, but um, absolutely, I think it's extremely important that you both that a really effective leader really needs to be tending to both things. And I think this is where a board comes in. A really effective board is going to require that their leader is tending to both facets of of their leadership in that way. Yeah, but you know, if they do, do you think that boards extend that into the organization enough? Because often it stops at the CEO or the executive, which could be just financial. But you think that we're, do you think that it gets extended enough? I mean, you know, it's always it's always good to start somewhere. So I am not downplaying that because I do think having been the CEO before, like I understand the importance of that. No, it doesn't get extended enough. And so I've talked about the CEO and executive director quite a bit, but the programs that we find, we find kind of leaders broadly. So those folks who are still emerging in their career, but they may be responsible for a body of work. They may not be the CEO or the executive director. I absolutely do think it's important. I also am of the belief that your values are are reflected in your budget. And (laughs) it's a moral document. Yeah. If you really, really believe that it is important to support the personal and professional development of your team, that 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 will become something that you not only include in your budget, but you will find ways in which in which to make it happen. And you know, there are examples in my tenure where I've seen nonprofits do that, right? Where it's not just the person in the C-suite who has an opportunity to be part of a professional development opportunity, but it's, you know, there are opportunities available for, for everybody, right? And it's, it's not a creaming situation. It's also but a retention strategy, right? So when people are like, my team keeps leaving, it's like, because you want them to do work and they want an investment in them. They want to be in a place that's investing in them and you want them to produce a product, right? Whatever the thing is. Mm-hmm. And they want to see seen and they want to be invested in. And so it is a, it's a retention strategy. I think there's an ROI on that. I think there is a retention strategy, but I also think that the, your people are your product. Mm. Right? So if every leader thought about that, you know, I in my, in very, very early in my career, before I came to Angel Foundation, if a person told me that they were leaving, I remember it would be like a gut punch, right? Oh my gosh, they're... And um, I, I really started to rethink that and really started to think of, you know, how, how can I make sure that the experience that a person has working with me is preparing them for whatever is next on their journey? And I started to really rethink that and think that if anyone left here I want, this goes back to the legacy piece. I want folks to say she worked with Angel or he worked with Angel. And I know that this person is coming to our foundation or to our organization with a level of investment that is going to make us better. And so I, that's how I've, you know, we frame everybody, no matter if you're an admin at Angel, you get an opportunity to participate. You get to go on retreats. You get an opportunity to participate in in pretty much any professional development opportunity that we can find because to me they are a product of of Angel Foundation as well as a product of my own legacy, and I think if all leaders really 
thought that way, again, your values will be reflected in that budget. And you will find a way to invest in, in the folks who you say every day you care about and you work alongside. Yeah, I love that. I think we are connected in so many ways and, and have many of the same beliefs, including that last one. If there's someone that works for me and they're out looking for something, I want people to know that they're coming with, with some good investment, including their, the, that they have had had the space to find their own voice, their own value, yes. right? Their own vision. They see their leadership because I'm not trying to replicate me. I'm trying to create the conditions for their success and finding my role in doing that with them, with my family and with this community. And I see that very much as part of what I bring to the table. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what I see too. And part of our role as leaders is sometimes to see, see something in other people that they haven't yet seen in themselves. Right. And so I actually sometimes always say, like, have you felt like the work that you come to the foundation to do is done? Or are you ready for your next? This is not about me pushing you out. This is about making sure that I continue to help you live into the light that I see and also the dream that you have articulated to me. Right. And so it's like sometimes, you know, the moving on is like a graduation. It's a celebration. Oh, my gosh. You get to now go on to the next thing. And if we could have some, you know, a whole bunch of folks who have been mentored by me and have come into the Angel Foundation and are leaving with that same ethos of what it means to be a relationship based funder and what it means to value being proximate to the community and centering folks who are most impacted by injustice, right? Like if we, if we cultivate enough of those people who are out in the world, leading organizations, leading movements, oh my gosh, that is a success story. That is an ultimate success story. That is, (laughs) that is the ancestors wildest dreams, right? Yeah. Continue to um, invest and support people in dreaming and things that weren't imagined or obtainable. Yeah. What we thought wasn't attainable. Which which we thought wasn't attainable. Yeah. Yeah. I am choosing, it's a choice. I'm choosing to um live in an abundance mindset. Right. It's a choice. Yeah. It's a choice. And, and you know, so I'm making that choice. I corrected your language only in service to it because I feel like we are we're so sisters. I feel like you you are in that same space too. <laughs> but I didn't even take it as a correction. I was like, yep, yeah, reframe me. <laughs> and, look, and some days it's like, let me stay right in the little muddy place I want to be in until tomorrow, and then call me up, read me a little Bible verse or whatever to get me out my best. <laughs> Um, Because sometimes, sometimes it's okay, right? And I think, I think that's been one of the biggest things for me over the last few years is sometimes it is just freaking okay to not be okay. And it has been the masking of that that has been the most dangerous to myself, right? And having that community that you talked about, of being able to be like, sis, and they're like, I know, and we got you is the greatest gift to be able to be that vulnerable and to be that supported 
And that's what is wonderful about being part of a community, finding that tribe, being intentional about not just doing the work, but building a community that can support you, right? Your humanity, the things that you said. So thank you for the gifts that you gave to us in this conversation. It was so appreciated. You, thank you. I really enjoy speaking with you. This was a, this was the highlight of my day, absolutely. And hopefully our listeners will, will get something from it too. They absolutely will. If you want to know more about Voice Vision Value, check us out at voicevisionvalue.org, where you can also read the Twin Cities chapter of the forthcoming book, Portraits of Us.